I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a child. Not any child. You are an orphan child. And you live in an orphanage, but not just any orphanage. An orphanage for problem children. Uh, where you go uh, when you can't live in a regular orphanage. Where your uh, chaperones are maybe not always nice to you. And maybe it's a really hard place to live. And imagine for a moment, in the middle of all of this brokenness, the very wealthy and rich and powerful man comes along and he adopts you out of that. And he takes you to this beautiful piece of property. And he says, I'm building this up for you and for me, but not just for you and for me, for all of the children that I'm going to adopt. But it's not done just yet. It's still a work in progress. And I'm going to send you back to this orphanage. Where, where all the troubled kids are. And I want you to go on that playground and in that classroom and in those dorm rooms. And I want you to tell them about me. And tell them that I'm coming back to adopt you. And, and, and I'm going to adopt all of you, no matter how bad you've been. I've already paid the price. The arrangements are already made. The only thing I want you to do is tell them about me and fill them with hope and joy. And so you, hearing this, are very excited. And you go back to the orphanage. And you go to the playground and you start telling people about this really wealthy guy who's going to adopt everybody no matter what they've done. All they have to do is just wait for him and accept his gift and it's going to happen. And, and they start to like reject you. And they start to think you're crazy because nobody actually does that. And they start to get really frustrated because you keep telling them, hey, you may be bad right now, but it's not going to always be that way. And they say, what do you mean I'm bad right now? I'm just fine the way I am. I like it here. Everything's fine. And so you start to get frustrated because they're not listening to your message. And so you're on the playground and you decide, well, you know, it's been a long time since this wealthy guy's come back to adopt us. So maybe, maybe this message of like hope and peace and love and grace and forgiveness, maybe it really doesn't work. Maybe what I really need to do is start teaching the kids how to properly swing on the swings while we're waiting on the playground. And so you go and you start telling them like how to swing. This is how you do it. I know because like this wealthy guy showed me like this is the right way to swing on a swing. Don't stick your feet under the teeter-totter. It will crush your foot and you'll lose a toenail. I've had that happen. Like don't, like don't do that. Okay, I know what I'm talking about. And this is how you swing. No, you're doing it wrong. Let me just take over. I'm just going to take over so that all of you can just do what I tell you because it'll be better because I know, Right? And then you get really frustrated because the more you try to take over, the more they start to push back. And then you get, it's like, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. And somewhere along the line, you forgot that you were supposed to be giving them a certain message about hope and peace. And you started trying to run the playground. <laughs> and, and, and it starts to change and it starts to get ugly. And then you go in the classroom and you're getting really frustrated now because nobody's listening and nobody's following the rules. And you have a rule in your classroom that no one's allowed to chew on pencils. And there's this kid in your class, man, he's neurotic. He's always chewing the pencils. And you've got to share the pencils. So then you've got to pick up the pencil with like his slobbery teeth marks in it. And it's really irritating. So you decide you've got to tell the teacher. Teacher, like this kid keeps chewing on the pencils. It's against the rules. Everybody knows it's against the rules. And it would really be better for everybody if he would just follow the rules. And then according to the infinite wisdom of the playground, you learn one very important lesson. And that is that snitches get stitches. <laughs> snitches get stitches. You see, I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried. And I, I don't like, like, I'm not going to mention politics at all. 
But I'm worried when I look around and I start to hear Christians sound like the guy who wants to run the playground instead of the guy who wants to preach the gospel. And it starts to make me concerned. And then we get surprised when a world that doesn't know about Christ starts to push back and starts to kick us harder and starts to think that we're part of the problem. And we're surprised by this. Now, granted, the bad kids on the playground, they're the bad kids on the playground. They're there for a reason. But just telling the bad kid to do it better has never really worked. And we shouldn't be surprised when the bad kid wants to punch you in the face. Like that shouldn't surprise us. When we come to this story in Luke, and we're, we're going to look at three things in this passage in Luke. We're going to look at the disappointing rejection. We're going to look at distracted disciples. And we're going to look at the, the determined Christ. So you've got these disciples and they're traveling with Jesus. And it's very near to the, to the uh, most important part of Jesus' ministry. It says here in verse 51 that as his days drew near for him to be taken up, it's a reference to the ascension that follows the death, burial, and resurrection. He'll be taken up. There's language in this passage and those that follow that is very reminiscent to the stories that we hear about the prophet Elijah. Elijah was taken up into heaven. There are a few more references in here that we'll look at. But Luke is writing this in such a way so that his reader will start thinking of the magnificence and the power of the prophet Elijah. And then he takes that image here in a minute and he turns it and says, yeah, he's like Elijah, but he's not like Elijah at all. We'll, we'll see that. So we have this imagery of the day is coming that he'll be taken up and he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Sets his face. It's a, it's a phrase of determination. It, it kind of makes sense when you hear it, right? He set his face. Uh, you see this phrase throughout Scripture. You see it a lot in the Old Testament. You see it at a couple different places. Sometimes God sets his face against someone. Uh, he's given them the, the wrathful, dirty stare of God. He sets his face against someone. Sometimes there's been some sort of disaster or a loss in a battle. And you'll see a character in Scripture, uh, one character in particular, sets his face to go out into the wilderness. And so to set one's face has this determination quality to it. But it also has a sense of impending judgment. That, that when you set your face to something, often something bad is sort of looming on the horizon. And so Luke paints us this picture of a Jesus who has in a determined way set his face for Jerusalem. And that is where he is heading. And they're passing through the land of the Samaritans. And as it is Jesus' practice, he sends some messengers on ahead to make preparations. And as it is the Samaritans' practice, when they see Jews coming through, they're like, hey, get out of here, Jewish guy. Like, you're going to Jerusalem. We have this age-old conflict about where we're supposed to worship. We think we should worship here in Samaria. You think you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. You're determined to go to Jerusalem. We want nothing to do with you. Move on. You see, uh, th th this is a, an old, old story of when the, when the man of God, in the Old Testament, the prophet of God, comes to certain places, he's often rejected. And James and John, the sons of thunder, they get kind of ticked off about this. They get mad about this rejection, and they have this response. Lord, can we like, cast down fire from heaven and burn them up? Uh, now, I'm sure you've wanted to do that. I wished I could like, bring down fire from heaven. It would be cool. It would make it easier to start campfires, which I have problems with. Like It would be easy. But there's, a, there's an image in play here. You see, again, 
going back to Elijah. James and John, if you recall last week's sermon, it has already been declared by the disciples that Jesus is the Christ. Like they know he has authority. They know he has power. They know, we, two passages ago, though we haven't read it in our weekly lectionary, we see uh, the events of the ascension where Elijah and Moses come, or not the ascension, the transfiguration where Elijah and Moses come and they're face to face with Jesus. And so at this point, like these guys know if Jesus wants to call down fire from heaven, he can do it. And there's some precedent of God calling down fire from heaven and burning people up. In, in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah has this confrontation with King Ahaziah. And Ahaziah has fallen through the lattice on his roof and become injured. And he sends messengers to the, to the prophets of Beelzebub because he needs healing. And these messengers get intercepted on the road by Elijah. And Elijah says, go tell Ahaziah that because he doesn't believe there's actually a God in Israel, that he's going to suffer forever from this injury. Go tell him that. And these messengers, they go back. You see, what had happened was, in ignoring God's prophet, Elijah, Ahaziah had been acting as if God didn't matter and God didn't exist. So these messengers go back, and Ahaziah says, well, that prophet, he can't talk to me that way. So I'm going to send a captain with 50 men to go tell him to come talk to me. We need to settle this. So he sends out a captain with 50 men, and he goes to the mountainside. And he, this captain says, Elijah, the king wants you to come with us right now. And Elijah says, since uh, you don't believe there's a God in Israel, take this message back. Boom! Kills 50 of them with a ball of fire out of heaven. Just like that. Burns them all up. So the king says, well, I'm going to send another captain, another 50. Sends them back. Captain comes and says, hey, Elijah, the king wants to see you right now. Come with us. Elijah says, since you don't believe there's a God in Israel, take this message back. Boom! Kills them all again. Calls down fire from heaven. Burns them up. Third captain gets sent with 50 men. This guy comes out and says, Elijah... I know you're a prophet of God, and if it is, with, it, it, I'm paraphrasing, but please don't kill me. Please just come back with me. <laughs> there, there is like some precedent for when people, uh, happens to be in Samaria, the same region as well, when people ignore the prophet of God, it's not without reason for God to drop a ball of fire on them. Like this has happened. And so James and John are like, God, Jesus, can we like do that? Can we call down a ball of fire? And, and burn these guys up. And it doesn't, we don't know what Jesus says, but he rebukes them. He, he turns and, and he does something, says something, as I'm sure only Jesus could. It was probably really awesome, and I wish I could hear it. But he rebukes them, and it says they go on to another city. And, and as I read that, I, I thought, you know, there's something about the disappointment of, of rejection that really brings out the worst in us. Uh, you know, we, we need to know, and I think we do know this, that as Christians, we are, we are facing more rejection than we're used to. Uh, here in this country, I am not at all trying to say that we're suffering persecution. But we are certainly not living in the same day as we were even 15 years ago. Things are changing. The climate is changing. And uh, we are increasingly being seen as being both as blindly and arrogantly exclusive. Um, and some of this may well be our fault. We may well, and I think we have to some extent, tried to be the guy on the playground telling everybody else what to do instead of just preaching the gospel and letting God sort it out. I think we have done some of that. I do also think that there are people on the playground who just don't want to listen to the gospel, period. And there's very little you're going to be able to say to convince them. There are people whose faces are set against Jesus Christ. Uh, but I, I think that uh, we need to get used to the idea that rejection is going to become a lot more common. 
and is always going to be disappointing. But I think we need to be really clear when we get upset about people rejecting the gospel, that they're really rejecting the gospel. And they're not just rejecting some words that we've said or something that we want or some special interest that we would desire to see happen. Let's make sure when we call people enemies of God that they're actually enemies of God. And they're not just opponents of ours. Um, I think it's a dangerous thing to slip into when we start pointing to people who would disagree with us and immediately labeling them as enemies of God who, upon whom we should call down fire. Uh, the gospel if it is in fact being preached well and being rejected, that result is ultimately in the hands of God. And our job is to be the guy who just preaches the message over and over and over. And that's not to say that when you're living on the playground, there, there isn't a better way to do things. There certainly is a better way to do some things. It is to say that when we get our priorities mixed up, the message gets lost and we begin to lose the credibility of the message anyway. It's better to keep our priorities in mind. We need to remember that the good news of God's grace, unmerited, undiluted grace, is not a welcome message. It's not even always a welcome message among Christians. But It's not a welcome message among Christians because most of us actually think we can still sort of work it out ourselves. It's often not a welcome message and mostly not a welcome message among the non-Christian because before you can get to grace, you have to first tell people that they're a sinner. And telling people that they're a sinner, no matter what the context, it seems like at this point is just uh, like the worst thing you could possibly do to create an unsafe space for someone by telling them that there actually is a such thing as, as, as moral right and wrong. And, and to live in an immoral way is actually harmful to you because we, we believe this, because God's told us this. But we have to know that that message, that message will not be received well. Uh, grace will not be received well most of the time, I fear. At least, that's been my experience. We also need to know that the gospel, it, it threatens the established order of things. Jesus, the, the Messiah... At the very least at this point, his people see him as a prophet like Elijah. I mean, he's powerful. Uh, he's, he's the Christ. He's coming through and, and he's asking the Samaritans to receive him. And by receiving him, he's actually asking them to give up their old grievances for the sake of the kingdom. This thing you've got about where to worship, you're going to have to let that go. Because the Messiah is here now and, and you need to just worship me. Where I am, that's where proper worship is. Uh, he's asking them to give up old grievances. He's asking them to give up things that they've actually built their identity around. The Samaritans have built their identity around being Samaritans and not Jews. And vice versa. The Jews have built their identity around, uh, around being Jews and not Samaritans and certainly not Gentiles. And Jesus is telling them, where I am, that is where you worship. Where I am, that is where the old grievances have to go because I'm bringing in a new kingdom. And there's no room for those old grievances in this new kingdom. You see that the gospel also, though, it's, it's threatening uh, because it calls into uh, question our, our commitments. Commitments most of the time that we made up ourselves or that our culture or society told us were the right thing to be committed to. The gospel has a tendency to turn those on their head and say, yeah, you know, um, maybe you ought to let that one go. Maybe, just maybe, we need to look at people who seem strange to us 
And instead of immediately assuming that they're dangerous, perhaps we see them as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's the first thing we need to think about instead of the last thing we need to think about. And we just need to know that the gospel is generally offensive and foolish. Paul is very clear uh, in, in his letter to the Corinthians that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. Uh, Blaise Pascal once said, In faith there is enough light to those who want to believe and enough shadows to, those, uh, to the blind who choose not to believe. Uh, the point being uh, that, f- that faith is the thing that gets you over that, that threshold. Um, but if someone doesn't want to believe, they're going to come up with all the rational reasons why it's just a fairy tale and why it's silly. And we need to not let that offend us. We need to not be so sensitive that if someone criticizes Jesus, uh, we want to kill them. Uh, there are some world religions where that's fairly common. That's not ours. Uh, Jesus can, will, can and will perfectly defend himself. Our job is to preach the good news, preach the gospel. But you see, rejection, that rejection that we experience... It breeds uh, bad responses from us. Sometimes a bad response is authentic zeal, right? James and John really loved Jesus. And they weren't wrong to want to defend him. They weren't wrong to want to stand up for him. But their zeal, though it was authentic, was completely misdirected. And it caused them to miss the vision of the actual mission. The actual mission was to win people over to follow Jesus, not kill the people who disagreed. Uh, they, they lost sight. Sometimes w- rejection causes us to be afraid. Uh, we, we are at a point in our society where our voice as, as Christians is not being heeded. It is even being mocked on a greater and greater basis. It's easy to become afraid. It's easy to hear the fear-mongering that's going on right now in the political sphere and on the news and allow that to affect us. Um, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that, that the problem is that we, we're having a bad response to rejection. It's not that, that we actually are in uh, the sort of threat that Jesus can't overcome. Uh, he can overcome whatever it is that we face. Sometimes fear then turns into a hateful sort of anger, which turns into a desire for retaliation, which can become a cynical grab for power that can masquerade as, as spiritual wisdom. And I am concerned that there are many of us now, many Christians right now in this season, who are very interested in a cynical grab for power, uh, even if it costs them their soul. And it concerns me, concerns me to see that. Because I think in the cynical grab for power that masquerades a spiritual wisdom, we're actually losing sight of the larger mission. We've become the disciples who just want to win the argument and crush our enemies instead of the disciples who want to preach the gospel. And Jesus is not going to be deterred by that. He set his face toward Jerusalem, toward his mission, death, burial, resurrection, later ascension and glorification, the salvation and redemption of the world. Jesus has set his face on that. And he's not going to allow these other distractions to dissuade him from that. And he rebukes his disciples when they're tempted to do that. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. So we have this disappointing rejection. And this story of rejection is followed up by this account of distracted disciples. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this guy walks up and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. There's nothing wrong with what he said. That's actually fairly normal for this context. A young man who wants to learn, who wants to make something of himself, would often attach himself to a learned rabbi, a popular rabbi, and said, I will follow you wherever you go, which normally means follow him around and listen to him teach and be seen with him until an opportunity comes up for you to sort of like do your own rabbi thing or to find a good job somewhere. It's more like a, an internship. And, and this guy says, Rabbi, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, if, he were where, uh, if Jesus was from where I'm from, he would look at him and say, Son, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you have no idea what you're talking about. See, this young man, his, his problem is that he hasn't really reckoned the cost. He sees Jesus as a, as a rabbi, as a teacher, as someone worth following. He does not understand what it actually means to follow Jesus right here and right now. What it means is, if you follow me, I'm not saying bad things are going to happen to you. I am saying you can't expect anything good to happen. It's going to be kind of ugly. He uses a phrase there, the Son of Man. That's that, that reference we see in Luke going back to Daniel chapter 7 where we have the Son of Man that the angels are singing glory and praises to and all of authority over all of creation is set under the Son of Man's feet. You see the contrast here though? Daniel 7, the Son of Man ultimately, eschatologically, has all of creation set under His feet. But the Son of Man in the Gospels, the Son of Man that's set His face to the cross, has nothing. He has to go through the cross, enduring the pain and the shame, and he's glorified ultimately by the Father. And that is our ultimate hope, even for ourselves, resurrection and glorification and the return of Christ. But to follow Jesus now and here and now uh, doesn't hold that same promise that we have in the future. If you're going to follow me, young man, you need to know what it means. And so this young man is distracted because he, he doesn't really get it. The second guy, uh, Jesus actually goes to him and says, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. It's probable that this man's father has been dead over a year. And in Jewish custom, you bury your uh, loved one in a particular tomb until the body completely decays. And then you collect the bones. You put them in what's called an ossuary, a bone box. And then you take their box of bones and you put it in the family vault. But you have to let the body decay first. What's likely happening here is this is a good son who's going to do his duty for his father, who's been dead for a year, but he has to go back and finalize this, this last act of respect for his father and move his bones to the family vault. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. See, there's a play here between physical death and spiritual death going on in this passage. Let, like Jesus is, is saying, now he's using metaphor and, and he's using some hyperbole. And so this is, this is big, powerful stuff. But he's basically saying, let the people who are spiritually dead take care of the dead. We need to go preach the gospel of life. What I'm preaching supersedes death and will overcome death to where, to where death becomes irrelevant. We need to go preach the gospel. That's the message that you need to preach. Yet another one says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell uh, to those at my home. 
And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here's another one of those allusions to Elijah. When Elijah called the prophet Elisha to come follow him, Elisha was actually plowing his family's field. And he says, You, come with me. God told me that you were supposed to succeed me. Follow me. And Elisha says, Well, can I go back and say goodbye to my family? And Elijah says, Sure. Go ahead. No problem. Elisha goes back, they have a big feast, he prays over his family, and then he goes and he follows Elijah. So get this, okay? This, this is what Luke is getting at, and this is what Jesus is saying. It isn't wrong for this young man to ask permission to go say goodbye to his family. That's not wrong. That's expected. The prophet Elijah allowed Elisha to do it. What Jesus is saying is that while I am like Elijah, I am greater than Elijah. And the message that I'm preaching is more important even than saying goodbye to family. And then he uses that imagery of the plow. Anyone who has his hands on the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now look, I don't believe Jesus is talking about like salvation in the greater sense. I think God's grace is poured out for all men. And I think we don't need to worry, you know, am I looking back? <laughs> am I Lot's wife? Am I looking back? Am I doubting? I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to say. He's simply trying to impress on this potential disciple at this very pressing time in his ministry that the message that we have to preach is more important than anything else. Just come follow me. And so as we face into this world where rejection seems to be more commonplace and where outright mockery of Jesus seems to be more likely than ever, uh, I think we need to take a lesson from the determined Christ. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He had one goal in mind and he was not going to be deterred. And that one goal was to pay the penalty for your and my sin. And he was not going to be deterred by any distraction. And so there are competing voices out there uh, telling us that the long-term results of the gospel just aren't fast enough. They're just not good enough. Like, I would really like to see people behave correctly right now. You know what? I really would. <laughs> I really would like to see people behave correctly right now. I really would. And it's true that a cynical grab for power to try to force everyone else to simply do what God has already said, it's true that we could force people to change their ways. It's also true that it would be superficial and artificial, and it wouldn't be because anyone was actually following, following Christ. And it's also true that when you use power games to control people, they will use them in return. And our message is something different. Our message is, is give up. Trust in God. Give up your doing. Uh, give up your, your need to defend yourself, your need to be right, your need to defend Jesus. Just preach the message. Bono, and you, I love you too. I have to tell a story. Heather Strong once told me, we were talking about music, and I told her how much I loved you too. And she looked at me, keep in mind, she's a fair amount younger than me. And Heather said, men of a certain age all love you too. I said, I'm only 40. Like, what does that mean? But Bono has a line in one of his songs, we need to stop helping God across the street like he's a little old lady. <laughs> God doesn't need help across the street. He can handle it. We have one mission, to set our face toward the cross and to preach that message. That's our job. And it's frustrating. And it's disappointing. And we don't always do it well. Um, but... That's the only thing that's going to bring long-term change to this world. It's the only thing. And so I say to you, do your duty 
as a citizen of the playground. Do your job. We have jobs to do while we're living on the playground. We really do. But don't let those jobs overtake the most important one. And don't let those jobs become a distraction or take away our credibility or our ability to speak clearly. It is better to lose and to speak clearly about the gospel than to win everything and lose the only thing that matters. And so Jesus has his face set toward Jerusalem for your salvation and for mine. And nothing has deterred him from that. Nothing that happened back then deterred him from it. And nothing that you're going to do right now will deter him from saving you. Nothing. And so we trust in him. And we ask him for patience and wisdom as we play on this playground. And we're tempted to try to force everyone to play by our rules. It's much more important to convince them that there's a king that's coming back. And he'll adopt all of them if they'll just turn to him. He'll adopt all of them no matter what. Father, we ask that you free our hearts from fear, that you free us to serve you well, that you free us to love you, that you free us to love others, that you free us, Father, to see this world the way you see it instead of the way that we'd want it to be, the way you are going to make it. Father, change us, make us whole, and make us witnesses for Jesus Christ. And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.